I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Superman first made his debut in the pages of Action Comics number 1 in June 1938. But the first time Big Blue appeared in theaters was 1941, when an animated short film produced by the legendary Fleischer Studios was released by Paramount Pictures. The short kicked off a string of 17 similar animated shorts. Superman transitioned into live action in 1948, with his debut in a serial simply called Superman. The 15-page saga starred Kirk Allen as the title character and Noelle Neal as Lois Lane, a role she would reprise in the 1950s TV series The Adventures of Superman, opposite George Reeves. 1951 saw the release of Superman vs. the Mole Men, a barely feature-length 58-minute film that was nevertheless the first live-action feature based on a DC Comics character. The movie, which starred Reeves in his first appearance as Kal-El and Phyllis Coates as Lois, was released in theaters but served as a backdoor pilot for the legendary Adventures of Superman TV series, which ran from 1952 through 1958. Following the cancellation of the Adventures of Superman, Kal-El took a 20-year hiatus from the big screen. In 1973, European father and son producers Alexander and Ilya Salkine purchased the dormant film rights to the character and arguably changed the course of comic book movie history. It was Ilya who convinced his father Alexander to buy the rights, setting them on a five-year journey to create the first true blockbuster superhero movie. The path to the film involved multiple candidates to direct, including Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, John Guillermo, George Lucas, Guy Hamilton, and Steven Spielberg. Several scripts by a number of different writers were written, among them Mario Puzo, David and Leslie Newman, and Tom Mankiewicz, and some 200 actors were considered for the role, ranging from superstars like Paul Newman and Robert Redford to non-professionals like athlete Bruce Jenner and Ilya Salkine's wife's dentist. In the end, the Salkines were impressed enough by a little horror movie called The Omen to hire its director Richard Donner, who decided to reduce the campy tone of the script and hire an unknown as Superman. That unknown turned out to be New York stage actor Christopher Reeve, who put on nearly 30 pounds of muscle for the role and became what many people consider the definitive screen Superman. Released in 1978 after two years of production and then unheard of $40 million budget, including a record $3.7 million paid to Marlon Brando for 10 minutes of appearance on screen as Superman's father Jarrell, Superman the movie set the standard for all superhero films to come. A true epic that encompasses Superman's origins, his arrival in Metropolis, his blooming affection for Lois Lane, Margot Kidder, and his first major battle with Lex Luthor, Gene Hackman. The movie was full of genuine warmth for the character, charm, humor, and visual effects that were, for the time, groundbreaking. Reeve knocked his performance out of the park, and the movie was a colossal hit. Hollywood now believed that comic book heroes could make them real money. Superman and Superman 2 were initially slated to be shot back to back, but the second film was put on hold as production issues forced the producers and Donner to focus on getting the first one finished. By the time filming on Superman 2 resumed, however, Donner was fired by the Salkines and replaced by Richard Lester. Superman 2 completed and released in 1981, and it was a huge hit and surprisingly solid follow-up, considering that it was stitched together from both the work of Donner and Lester. 
Lester returned to direct 1983's Superman 3, and it was his intention to take the franchise in a campier direction. Audiences and critics did not take kindly to the campier tone of the film, and it was not as big a hit as the first two, with the Salkinds eventually selling the rights to the Superman franchise after their attempt at a spin-off, 1984's poorly received Supergirl, also failed at the box office. The rights were picked up by the notorious Canon Films, known mainly for low-budget exploitation fare. After luring Reeve back to play Kal-El a fourth time and rehiring both Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder, the company cut the budget from $35 million to $15 million. As a result, 1987 Superman 4: The Quest for Peace was a disaster. A cheap-looking, shoddily-made bomb that put the Superman franchise on ice for nearly two decades. The franchise has continued to decline with more recent efforts such as Superman Returns and Man of Steel. But for fans, the saga of Tim Burton's Superman Lives is the greatest what-if of all time. After working as an animator for Disney and making numerous short films, the visionary director Tim Burton made his feature directorial debut with the film Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was a smash hit and led to a series of new and innovative pictures. Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, and Mars Attacks. Batman arguably gave birth to the modern era of comic book movies. But heading back to 1987, Superman 4 had bombed critically and financially forcing Warner Brothers to put the franchise to rest. Then in 1992, the success of the Death of Superman comic book storyline revived not only Superman comics, but also studio interest in the caped hero. Warner Brothers realized that this new surge in mainstream popularity could give them the merchandising cash cow they'd been looking for. In other words, they found their Star Wars. Warner Brothers' first misstep was to put producer John Peters on the job. Having got a start in the industry as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, Peters had impressive DC Comics credentials as a producer on both Burton's Batman and Batman Returns. Peters also shared Warner Brothers' business approach, which essentially boiled down to an obsession with recreating Star Wars merchandising capability. Unfortunately, Peters also knew next to nothing about the Superman mythos, was liable to be overly influenced by anything he'd recently seen, and, in the words of Kevin Smith, turned out to be not a really great guy or smart guy. Warner Brothers' second mistake was to target pretty much everyone, aiming for a so-called mainstream audience. Jonathan Lemkin wrote the first draft, at that point titled Superman Reborn, and decided to harness a broader appeal by exploring Superman's love life through Clark and Lois's relationship, later also going as far to reincarnate Superman through Immaculate Conception. It was loosely based on the death of Superman's story. Lemkin's emotional Christ parallel tack did not satisfy Warner Brothers. A second draft by Gregory Poirier was more successful in aiming towards the audience they wanted. Poirier took on board Warner Brothers' Star Wars cravings with his regrettable introduction of Finyar, the mental process by which Kryptonians supposedly access their super abilities. He essentially stole the Force and repurposed it for Superman audience. One sequence sees Cadmus, an alien victim of Brainiac, channel Obi-Wan while training Superman to use his Finyar to regain his powers. It is as awful as it sounds. Enter Kevin Smith of Clerks fame. After a routine meeting at Warner Brothers, Smith was given the chance to take a look at Poirier's script. He hated it. A lifelong comic book fan, he immediately realized that the script neither respected nor understood its Death of Superman source material. Finally, somewhat abandoning their approach of attempting to cash in on a Star Wars type blockbuster, Warner Brothers agreed that he could write the script. 
However, the first mistake in hiring John Peters had farther ramifications. In order for Smith to get his job, he had to get Peters' approval. Smith met with Peters in August 1996, only to discover the full extent of Peters' bizarre creative impulses. Peters had three main requirements. He's going three things. Okay, I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. After being somehow inspired by Smith chasing Amy, Peters also decided that Brainiac's robot sidekick, Elron, be a gay R2-D2. Though incredulous, Smith squeezed in Peters' requirements with as much finesse as he could manage. He also came up with the title Superman Lives, believing it to be better than Superman Reborn. The result was a story that many fans now regard as being the most faithful to the mythos. Brainiac blocks the sun to stop Superman's power, sending Doomsday to kill him before joining forces with Lex Luthor. Superman is saved by a Kryptonian robot, the Eradicator, who he conveniently uses as armor to defeat Brainiac. Smith is also the one who threw out the idea of getting Tim Burton to direct. Ironically, this would cause Smith to be booted from the project after Burton was actually hired and he strongly disliked his script. And so, it was bye-bye Kevin Smith and hello Wesley Strick. He had done some writing on Batman Returns and stayed on set with Tim the entirety of shooting. Burton and Strick's take on the character was mainly focusing on Superman as an alien, an outsider. The script began to dive into the elements of his discomfort and confusion in being different than humans, and actually only wanting to fit in. But who could play this alien take on Superman? Who could encompass the strength and power, but also portray a different vulnerability and neurotic Clark Kent, searching for answers of his origins? Enter Nicolas Cage! When Tim Burton came on board, Cage signed up to star in the title role, each guaranteed $5 million and $20 million respectively in their pay or play contracts. Cage truly understood the comic book lore. A lifelong Superman fan who famously named his son Kal-El, he supported Burton's appointment, explaining at the time, Burton has always been very sensitive about the outsider. And Tim really got that Superman is an alien. He's the only superhero, not human, and he really got how to make that aspect of Superman interesting. Because he always felt like an alien growing up. Cage has since gone farther in his praise, declaring Burton to be a genius in his Empire podcast in 2013. Of his own approach, he humbly stated, I knew I was going to go towards something quite unique and different than anything you've seen with Superman. As the pre-production ball finally began to roll in the summer of 1997, it still looked like Superman Lives was actually going to happen. The art department kicked off its research, trying to land on anything vaguely marketable. Burton began to scout for locations, choosing Pittsburgh as the stand-in for the fictional city of Metropolis. And Nicolas Cage even went for a couple costume fittings. Cage's Clark Kent was impressive, and a totally new direction for the character. It's an approach that accomplishes something particularly important to talk about, as it actually addresses the problem of how to portray Superman for modern audiences. Burton's Superman Lives was premised on a Clark Kent who doesn't know he's an alien, and who feels isolated and lonely in his own skin. He searches constantly for an explanation for his powers, for a way to feel connected to the rest of the world. So the revelation of his alien origins shakes him to his core, and farthers his sadness at his own isolation. Clark in Superman Lives is a man who has just wanted to feel like everybody else and to overcome the aspects of his life that separate him from other people. He isn't pretending to be someone else. He is instead desperately and earnestly trying to be exactly who he is. If only he can figure that out. 
it is a way of taking the usual narrative of him as an alien messiah and showing us all he ever wanted was to be one of us and ultimately his home is here on our world not out in cold space somewhere and in that way it very much humanizes him and finds his relevance rooted in the simple fact of our shared human longing to belong and be understood. Other casting choices for the film were Christopher Walken as Brainiac, Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor, and at one point in the film they would merge into one entity, and Sandra Bullock was being heavily considered for Lois Lane, and Chris Rock for Jimmy Olsen. When it came to developing the look of the film, a small army of concept artists were hired to get to work on building this unique Superman world. Tim Burton often draws his own bizarre interpretations, and then those are interpreted by various concept artists. Several teams were put together to get to work on the designs of the film. Both practical effects teams and illustrating artists were working with the production designer to create this new, exciting world. John Peters would often interfere or come into the studio to look over the drawings and critique them. He'd often bring along his kids and a large group of people, which was always distracting to the artists. He even put an artist in a headlock for no reason. FX teams got together to make various suits, some special used to heal Superman that demanded a sort of Vegas light show. In comic book movies, the costume is always so crucial and cool. In this movie, the costume was also designed to tell Superman's story and contribute to his arc. It would go from the normal costume to being killed and then revived by Kay. His second costume would be a healing suit. And then the final form would be Kay in a new form on Superman's body. And as for Clark's costume, it would have been different. A sort of aloof, awkward guy with poor style. Someone no one would ever expect to be the Man of Steel. He was more like a Silicon Valley eccentric weirdo. Your of the year. There were a few visual effects tests for the flying as well. And that shit was pretty cool. But just as quickly as things developed on the project, they came crashing down. As Nicolas Cage reasoned in the Metro, Warner Brothers got scared because they had two artists that weren't afraid to take chances. Dan Gilroy was then employed to write a cheaper version of Strick's script. In an interview with IndieWire, Gilroy lets loose on some evocative details about what he says would have been a Superman for the ages. I was very taken by Tim's approach which was that Kal-El was not told by Jarrell before he got put into the little spaceship who he was or where he came from. So, poor little Kal-El, when he winds up on Earth, he has no freaking idea where he came from. His biggest fear is that he's an alien. Our Superman was in therapy at the beginning of the film. He's in a relationship with Lois Lane and he can't commit. Or he was maybe in couples therapy, but he can't commit because he doesn't know who he is or what is going on with him. He's hoping that he has some physiological condition that gives him these powers, but that he's still human. Gilroy states that in his draft, Clark Kent doesn't realize he's an alien until Lex Luthor finds remnants of the spacecraft that took him to Earth. It was all about the psychological trauma of it. But unfortunately, it didn't come to pass because of problems that even Superman couldn't overcome. Finances. Three drafts later, Warner Brothers were still not happy. The project was put on hold in April 1998, just months before its proposed release date. For the same reasons they can Ridley Scott's I Am Legend, they can Superman Lives. The big blockbusters like Sphere, The Postman, and Batman and Robin were absolute failures. And they just didn't want to take the risk spending so much money, $200 million or so, on any darker or original materials that couldn't be made into Happy Meal toys. And what went wrong? Well, you know, these studios become like these big corporations, and you're yeah. having to like design characters for Happy Meals before you design them for oh. the film, you know? Burton then left the project to work on Sleepy Hollow, and the film descended farther into development hell. 
If they just allowed us to make the film, he said, I think that we could have done something interesting. Finally, Nicolas Cage pulled out of the project in 2000, and Superman Lives was officially dead. Leaving the world wondering forever what could have been. What genius did we miss out on because once again money and business got in the way of art. However, the very idea of its development and the concept art and costume tests makes this one of the coolest Superman stories ever told. And has even inspired mega fans like John Schnepp to successfully raise money on Kickstarter to make his own feature length documentary on the subject. The death of Superman lives. What happened? Which I strongly suggest you check out if you like this video. As we come to the end of our third episode, there seems to be a theme in these videos of studios and their inability to take risk with lots of money. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal, but they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Perhaps this is the thing that keeps the medium of movies in perfect balance. But hell, I wish I would have been able to watch this movie. But again, Superman lives, lives on in cinema history. And that is the power of a unique vision and an interesting project. That works. Let me figure out what the suit is. Maybe we can't talk about like a chemical like baby blanket or something you know, almost, you know? That kind of, obviously has a life of its own, but it's, it's a lot of like almost more chemical properties. It's, yeah. It's,